Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 18 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And we have a lot packed into today's episode for you guys. We're going to be talking about the latest insanity out of California and not just the usual stuff that the ruling one-party Democratic Party there does there on a regular basis, but also what the Republicans are up to and the absolute clown show that they have just gotten started in that state. We're going to be talking about if perhaps the left's emphasis on racial justice this and systematic oppression that might be backfiring on them with their own voters. We're going to be talking about, of course, a variety of other things such as, well, most simply, why does the left always win all the time? Why are they constantly winning? Why are they constantly beating the crap out of the right? And why have they been doing so consistently for decades? Be sure to give us a follow if you haven't already on all the various social media platforms where we are available. We are on Facebook and YouTube, but we are also on the major alt tech platforms like Gab and Minds and the video sharing websites BitChute and Rumble. You can see a full list of these sites and all the various podcast platforms where we are available at our website, righttakepodcast.com slash contact. So for those of you who don't know, I'm from California. Born and raised there. I was the uh, sixth generation of my family in the exact same small, humble little farm town in California, central California, a.k.a. the best part of the state, the part of the state that literally no one else in the state is aware of. And oh, California, you know, people from outside of California see news like this and think the tide is turning. It's official, guys. I wrote about it at American Greatness. California will be having a gubernatorial recall election this year, probably in November. The campaign to recall incumbent Democrat Gavin Newsom, who was lieutenant governor under Jerry Brown and was elected himself in 2018, the campaign gathered over 2.1 million signatures. The minimum threshold was about was just shy of 1.5 million. They submitted to the Secretary of State's office by the deadline in mid-March. And the Secretary of State, Shirley Weber, announced on Monday that they, of course, their, her office went back and had to um, make sure there were no fraudulent signatures, you know, because we, we don't like voter fraud, right, Jacob? You know, voter fraud is, is not good. So Voter fraud? Voter fraud never happens in America? What are you oh, talking oh, yeah, about? Of, course, of course not. Of course not. That's why, that is exactly why Secretary Weber scrubbed half a million signatures from the full recall petition. So it went down from 2.1 million to 1.6 million, just barely <laughs> above the threshold. But it was still enough nonetheless. So now they go through a, um, a total, a 90-day period now. The first 30 days of this period w- is for anybody who feels, anyone who signed the petition and now suddenly feels compelled to maybe change their minds. They get the chance to call their local county registrars and take their name off the recall petition. If there still is enough signatures after those 30 days, there will be another 30 days where the Department of Finance will review the election process and determine how much it would cost to have the recall election. After that, another 30 days where a budget committee will review and confirm the Department of Finance's estimates. After those 90 days, the Lieutenant Governor of California, Eleni Konalakis, uh, will set the date for the recall election itself, which will probably be in early November. In the recall election, how this works is there's a single ballot with two questions on it. The first question is, should Governor Gavin Newsom be recalled? And it's a very simple yes or no answer. You bubble, fill in one of those two bubbles. Following that is a full list of candidates who are running to replace him in the event that an absolute majority, 50% plus one, vote to recall him and then subsequently cast, get to cast a vote for one of those candidates. Whichever candidate wins a plurality of that vote 
assuming that a majority votes recall, will then automatically immediately be elected governor. It's that simple. And if you vote no on recall, you can still cast a vote in the list of potential candidates in the event the recall goes through. So there are already a lot of well over a dozen candidates running, and it's probably going to be more than that. It could be more than 50 candidates. When the 2003 recall election happened, there were like over 100 candidates running, you know, various little just total joke candidates, a handful of just absolute literal memes, you know, memes before they were memes, if you will. And some of them are actually back for this election. Uh, A former porn star named Mary Carey, a singer known as (laughs) Rania Goldberg, uh, more famous by her stage name, Angeline. And some of the just absolute joke candidates are running as a joke because it's California. You know, why not? Uh, On the Republican side, there are currently four major Republican candidates. One of them is former Congressman Doug Osi, who briefly ran in the 2018 gubernatorial race before he then dropped out before the primary. John Cox, the businessman from Illinois who moved to California right before the 2018 election, was the Republican nominee in the 2018 gubernatorial election against Gavin Newsom, where he subsequently got absolutely destroyed with uh, 38% of the vote to Newsom's 62% in the biggest gubernatorial landslide in California, by the way, since 1950. So that this old guy, this businessman who's not even from California, is running again for governor. Kevin Falconer, perhaps the biggest rhino in the entire nation, and absolute, he was the mayor of San Diego. He is pro-choice, pro-amnesty, pro-gay marriage. He believes in global warming. He raised taxes on several occasions in San Diego. So even the sacred cow of Republican positions of lower taxes all the time is not sacred to this guy. Uh, Pro-gun control. He's anti-Trump. So many things. (laughs) Total rhino. And the party leadership in California just loves this guy. They're obsessing over him. In what way is he supposedly better than Newsom? That is a very good question. He is, I don't know, maybe he's younger than Newsom question mark no he's older than Newsom that doesn't work either um yeah I I don't know it's it's that's that's to be expected from Republicans in the state of California but also isn't the uh the transgender yes Bruce Jenner who likes to pretend to be called Caitlyn you know former Olympic athlete and reality tv show part of the Kardashian the larger Kardashian family who now thinks he's a woman calls himself Caitlyn and wears a dress and uh went through the procedures is also running as a Republican, as, you know, a base, based tranny, I guess, because, you know, he did vote for Trump in 2016, so that was kind of cool. But, yeah, he is running, because why not? It's California. Who knows? And this is actually, this is the big debate. The, the one other candidate, real quick, a couple other candidates who are talking about running, Rick Grinnell, the former ambassador to Germany and acting DNI, Director of National Intelligence in the Trump administration, is considering a run as well. He would by far be the favorite among Republican voters uh, because he is unapologetically pro-Trump. Trump would endorse him. And Republican leadership in California hates Trump, but the voters love Trump. So he would be the favorite for sure if he jumped in. But he's taking his sweet time in announcing, which is questionable. Uh, the legendary actor Randy Quaid is considering running for governor as well, because why not, right? Um, and also, real quick, Mike Cernovich is allegedly considering running for governor of California as well. So good luck on that, Mike Cernovich. You know, best, best of luck on that. Um, so the Bruce Jenner thing. And yes, I'm going to keep calling him Bruce because that's his real name. And I'm going to keep referring to him as he because I we should never. This is the big debate. I think the right should never, ever cross the line on transgenderism. It doesn't matter. It's a mental disorder. It's a mental illness. It should be treated as such. It's not normal. So as conservatives, we should not ever support someone like Bruce Jenner running for governor of California. 
just because, oh, he may get more votes. He's got name recognition. He's a reality TV star. Of course, people are going to compare him to Trump or maybe compare him to Schwarzenegger. But this is vastly, vastly different. Half of my friends agree with me. I'm in some group chats with former friends of mine from the California College Republicans. Half are with me on that. Like, no, we will never compromise and vote for a mentally ill, literally mentally ill person like Bruce Jenner. And the other half is we just want to see the world burn, right? You know, California is already a joke. It's chaos already. It can't possibly get any. It could get more chaotic if we help push it along. So let's vote for Bruce Jenner as the chaos candidate to just see everything implode faster. I kind of get where those people are coming from. But I'm just I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would be willing to go that far to vote for someone like him just to make that kind of a statement. You mentioned that anytime that there's like because of the recall election, it ginning up a lot of support among conservatives, a lot of hope among conservatives. And maybe the tide has turned in California. People have finally gotten sick and tired of Gavin Newsom. But this is a very frequent refrain we see in conservative circles, specifically the Fox News circles. Typically, they pay a lot of attention to California and New York. In Maryland, you know, blue states, because a lot of the people who run Conservative Inc. live in these states. So they tend to put a lot more emphasis on these states than they do states where Republicans actually have a chance to win. Perfect example was Kimberly Klasik during the 2020 congressional campaign for the 7th District of Maryland. She obviously produced – Benny Johnson with Turning Point USA produced that viral video of her, that campaign ad. I think it reached like 10 million views on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But And she then she up, spoke at the Republican National Convention. Right, which, is, it's, a which is insane. She, she ended up getting 25 percent of the vote in that district. She was never going to get above 30 percent in that district. She had about the same chance as any Republican beating Nancy Pelosi. Like it just – it wasn't going to happen. This is what the Republican – Party and Conservative Inc. likes to do. They like to bring out the floodlights and just you know really shine these these lights on states and candidates where they have absolutely zero chance of winning. California is not ever going to elect a Republican, at least not within the next two generations. So for them to you know build up the fact that oh wow they're recalling Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom is not going to lose this recall election. He is no. going to he's going to soar to reelection. And people really need to understand that you're not going to flip Maryland's 7th Congressional District until you change the culture in Maryland's 7th Congressional District. You're not going to flip California until you change the culture in California. And we're going to get into this a little bit later in our main topic about this is how Democrats are making inroads to Texas, inroads into Georgia, states that traditionally have been Republicans should not be up for debate. It should be They should be solidly red. If Republicans follow the same playbook that they do, then they would be making inroads into places like Massachusetts and California. And just a few more numbers real quick because people try comparing this to the 2003 recall where obviously Democrat Gray Davis was recalled and replaced with Schwarzenegger who proceeded to turn the California Republican Party from a an actually decently right-wing center-right party into basically a center-left party. He single-handedly did that as governor. But this is – obviously that was 2003. This is 2021. It's 18 years later. Just a few numbers for you guys. When Newsom was elected in 2018, as I said, he got about 7.7 million votes. 62%, which was the highest since Earl Warren was reelected all the way back in 1950. And it was the highest percentage for a non-incumbent candidate in the state since 1930. And even more recently than that, of course, we had the presidential election in California. And it's no secret California is the sole reason Democrats keep winning the popular vote. And it was, the, it was that way in 2016. If you took away the vote totals of both Trump and Clinton in California in 2016, then Trump wins the national popular vote. In 2020, it was even worse. Trump did do a lot better. He got 6 million votes, just over 6 million votes, which was the which set the record for the highest vote total any Republican presidential candidate has ever gotten in any state. But Biden, the alleged winner, 
got just over 11.1 million votes, which smashed the record for the highest vote total of, for a single candidate in any race in any state ever in American history. President, governor, Senate, anything. And that was California. And I, and I believe that vote total is real. There was definitely voter fraud in the key swing states where votes were manufactured to give Biden the edge in those really close Rust Belt states and Georgia and Arizona and whatnot. And probably Nevada, too. But California, I believe every single one of those votes. I believe that those were 100% real votes, mostly illegals, mostly, you know, again, it's just a stupidly heavily populated state. It's by far the most populous state in the nation. And that is that's what we're up against. And, yeah, Newsom is getting, quote, recalled because of 2.1, or I guess in this case, 1.6 million signatures. 1.6 million out of over 17 million votes cast in the presidential election in California last year. So... It's. It may seem, you know, that tunnel. Yeah, that tunnel vision. That the fact that this recall is happening, but realistically, yeah, he's not going to get recalled. It's. It'll be a fun little headache for Gavin, and nothing more, in my opinion. So with that, I wanted to move on to uh, another thing I wrote about for American greatness. This was actually really interesting. So the we know, of course, obviously, the Democrats have gone all in on you know racial justice and you know white supremacy and everything. They've gone all in on this pandering to this multicultural coalition that stands behind this common idol of white people bad. And a study from Yale University, one of the Ivy League of Ivy League schools, seems to indicate that this, of course, people like to say that this could hurt Democrats in 2022, but this study suggests it could actually hurt them among their own voters. And it's Probably shouldn't take you much to guess which of their voters are more bothered by this. It's originally reported by the New York Post. It was conducted by Micah English and Joshua Kala at Yale, with the goals of the survey being to find out, quote, how racial attitudes shape policy preferences in the era of Black Lives Matter and increasing liberal views on racial issues, end quote. So to determine this, they asked various voters, all of the left-wing persuasion, you know, self-identified liberals, leftists, Democrat voters, they asked voters about various key issues, such as universal health care, student debt cancellation, the Green New Deal, and legalizing marijuana, amongst other things. And they asked them to certain of these voters through different lenses. Some of these questions were framed as being purely about economic justice. Oh, cancel student debt to relieve them of the capitalist burden. Or they were framed as racial justice, such as asking about the Green New Deal because global warming hurts black people more than white people, apparently. Assuming global warming is even real, but I digress. So they and for this, they actually incorporated rhetoric from Democrat politicians in both of these cases on all these issues in order to show, yeah, this both of these narratives can be used separately by Democratic Party figures. The study subsequently found that white voters, even those who identify as liberal and supportive of Democrats, are less likely to support an issue if it is framed based on race, if it is preached to them as this is being done for racial justice. Conversely, black voters, not surprisingly, are more supportive of issues that are framed as being based explicitly on race. So this is interesting, obviously, because this isn't, you know, Republican voters who obviously are going to oppose Green New Deal no matter what. This is liberal white voters who are more off put by Black Lives Matter type multicultural pandering messaging. And, and what's funny is that, of course, the, these two these two idiots at Yale, English and Kala, what's their conclusion from this? What is their determination as a result of this study? They said that it, although this is not representative of, quote, old-fashioned racism, end quote, they determined that the motivation of these white liberals to be put off by this, it's still racism anyway. They said, quote, racism remains a pernicious force in white Americans' policy preferences. 
Despite leftward shifts in public attitudes towards issues of racial equality, racial framing decreases support for race-neutral progressive policies, end quote. So I guess even white liberals are racist now too, right, Jacob? Well, what's interesting is they're, they're talking about this whenever they frame it in racial terms to white liberals. White liberals prefer to use these racial terms to frame issues like environmental, so-called environmental justice, like they're talking about whether it's infrastructure spending or anything that they care about whenever they're speaking to black people. And as an example, I was on a Greyhound one time, and there was this Baltimore hipster who was going on and on very loudly. And he finally moved into single-payer health care, and he was trying to convince the black gentleman that was sitting next to him that we need to adopt single-payer health care. We need to you know, have universal health care. And, and the, the black guy was just nodding his head. It's like, oh, okay. Like, he wasn't really giving an opinion. Just like, just listening to him, being polite. And the, the hipster could tell he wasn't getting anywhere. So finally he goes, you know, the reason why there's a lot of opposition to single payer is because of racism. It's just like back during uh, on the debate on Social Security, people opposed Social Security because it was going to end up going to elderly, poor black people. And I'm thinking – that's, that's the dumbest argument I've ever heard in my life. Social Security was passed by FDR with overwhelming support from white people who didn't like blacks. Like the idea that any opposition to Social Security was because it was going to hurt black people. I mean, blacks made up like 10 percent of the population. Most of the beneficiaries of Social Security were white. But what they do, it, these progressives, what they'll do is they'll take any issue they care about. It can be gun control. It can be the ending of fossil fuels. It can be spending for bike lanes, anything they care about. And they try to pitch it to black voters in racial terms. But it's just a tactic. They, they don't actually mean – they don't actually want reparations to black people. They don't actually want to benefit and improve the lives of black people. They just need their vote. So if you turn that around and you ask them, you, pr you promote their own policies to them in racial terms, they're going to be turned off uh, by it because if, they, if they're the ones promoting it, they are in control. If it's being promoted to them in racial terms, it's like, well, wait a minute. This is – they're, you know, they're actually serious about this reparation stuff, about this racial justice stuff. Because exactly. To them, it's, it's only ever been a tactic to get black votes for their priorities. Right. They always felt like they were still in charge and they were just using, you mm -hmm. know, you know, African-Americans or, you know, certainly Hispanic-Americans to as, build their coalition. Right. Right. But what's happening as black Democrats gain more and more power within the Democratic Party, they are now the ones who are using white progressives for their ends. I see it perfectly illustrated with the current administration. You have Joe Biden, the you know, crusty old white guy who was elected seemingly because he could appeal to moderates and whatnot and, you know, bring back unity and people were turned off by Trump and then waiting in the wings. All these every time you see a press conference and you see or, uh, the Oval Office or anything, he's speaking at the podium. And who's that standing behind him, watching him like she's waiting for the poison to kick in? <laughs> Kamala yep. Harris. So, and that that is the that is a perfect analogy, I think, because once Biden goes, whether he dies in office or uh, is removed due to being demented or whatever, or if he just somehow miraculously survives to the end of this term but doesn't run for re-election, one way or another, Kamala Harris is going to be president after him. So you've noticed he's extremely deferential to her. Extremely, like he, oh yeah. He even refers to their administration as our administration, the Biden Harris administration, which has never been done before. And I said this before, back when Time Magazine declared their Person of the Year last year. It's almost always Person of the Year always goes every four years to whoever wins the presidential election. That's that's just a given. That's always been the case. But that was the first time ever the people of the year was both Biden and Harris. They've never done that before. So the media knew. Everyone knows. Biden's not really running the show. He is just a transition president for Harris, which will be – mark that transition from the old order of white liberals controlling the Democratic Party 
using black people to their advantage to finding out, oh, wait, now they actually are taking over from us now. This is now the Black Lives Matter Democratic Party. Yeah, so that's why any kind of legislation on the Green New Deal, any kind of legislation on on transportation, any kind of progressive priority has to be filtered through the lens of black identitarianism. It has They have to sell it on how this is going to help black people. They can't just sell it on its merits anymore. If it's universal health care, no matter what, what it is, it always has to go through the filter of how this helps black people or the new term people of color. So we've talked before about what exactly the right can do to push back against what seems like every institution that is completely ganged up on normal people who just want to live basic American lives, have some dignity and their you know pride in their country. One of the ways that we've discussed that, that the right can push back is at the state level. Because despite the, put, the setbacks in 2020, Republicans did relatively well at the state level. Here's the way that the legislatures currently stand. There are 61 chambers that are completely controlled by Republicans, 37 controlled by Democrats. The breakdown of control prior to 2020 was 59 to 39. So Republicans picked up two. So despite the losing the White House, despite losing Congress, Republicans do control the majority, the vast majority of the legislatures. They, they control, most importantly, the spending because they control the House of Representatives in most of these states. So one, of the, one way that, that the states are actually pushing back on some of the shenanigans that we saw in 2020 is passing bills to crack down on voter fraud. We've seen Georgia, Arizona, Tennessee, a few other states, Pennsylvania. They've got they haven't they got a Democratic governors. So it's a little bit hard there in Texas. One of these bills is Senate Bill Seven. It's now waiting action in the House. And once the House, which of course is controlled by Republicans, once once the House passes this bill, it'll go to Governor Greg Abbott for a signature. There's several aspects of this bill. Like it, it regulates early voting. It bans drive-through voting, which which is huge. It bans drop boxes, which is another big issue because. One of the things that Democrats like to do is they like to set up drop boxes around urban areas, and it, that just opens up, the, um, up a huge avenue to voter fraud. But the most important aspect of this bill is it bans direct donations to counties of more than $1,000 unless they are unanimously approved by the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the house. Now, why is this huge? So Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chen spent $350 million on election administration during the, 20, during the election in November. Now, Ordinarily, this isn't completely out of the ordinary for private – for nonprofits to spend money to help poll workers, to pay for poll workers' salaries, to help them get material out for to inform voters, to buy food or whatever for the poll workers. But it's incredibly rare. Normally, the state governments, they cover 100 percent of the cost of these, of these poll workers or these precincts. That's kind of their job. That's what they're supposed to do. But the argument that Zuckerberg and others made – and he wasn't the only one that donated to this, as we're going to see – the arguments they made was that because we're in a pandemic, the state governments aren't given enough money to conduct elections. So you need – obviously, if you're going to have early voting, you got to expand early voting because of the pandemic. You need a lot more poll workers. you got expanded mail-in voting. You need additional poll workers to count all those ballots. Also, there was the argument that a lot of voters don't really understand how the system works, and the states haven't done a good enough job explaining the process, explaining how they can get ballots, how, they, how to fill in those ballots, et cetera, et cetera. So these nonprofits are arguing we need to step in and provide additional funds to help the election process. But when you think about it, $350 million, the election campaigns themselves typically don't cross a billion. I mean each presidential campaign spends about a billion, maybe slightly more than a billion. This is more than a quarter of what a presidential campaign would spend throughout the entire course of the primaries and general election. And this money was going straight to counties so they could conduct elections. 
Now, a lot of people were saying, well, they need to also need to pay for protective equipment. One of the things that the Foundation for Government Accountability found when they researched how the money was used is that very little of this money actually went for personal protective equipment or PPE. Most of it went to help get out the vote, which technically is you know supposed to be in a nonpartisan way. But the problem with this is the bulk of this money went to counties that Biden won. Not only did they go to counties that Biden won, they went to counties with extremely high Democratic voter registration. So a separate report by this foundation on Pennsylvania found that Pennsylvania got $20 million for 23 ele- election jurisdictions. It found that the, Biden, the jurisdictions that, that were carried by Biden got an average of $5 per registered voter compared to $1.12 per registered voter in the counties that Trump carried. The research also found that Democratic-leading counties received 92% of the total spent in Pennsylvania. I mean, that's – I understand that most of the counties that Trump carried were rural, but for 92% of the money to be spent on counties that Biden carried, that's that's not even a little sketchy. That's kind of – it's kind of obvious that what Zuckerberg was trying to do. I mean, everybody knows how left-leaning Zuckerberg is, but – the idea that he's going to spend $350 million on election administration and this election administration isn't going to be tilted in favor of Democrats is kind of laughable. But if we look at the organization that uh, that he was donating to, it's called the Center for Tech and Civic Life. So the Center for Tech and Civic Life, its director's name is Tiana Epps Johnson, and she just happens to have been a worker at the New Organizing Institute, which the Washington Post referred to as the Democratic Party's Hogwarts of Digital Wizardry. She was also a former Obama Foundation fellow. Not only that, but other Donnie Bridges, Whitney May, who also founded CTCL, had also worked at New Organizing Institute. Okay, so jumping over to Texas, Capital Research Center investigated how this foundation, Center for Technology and Civic Life, impacted the elections in Texas. So CTCL gave $33.5 million in grants to Texas. That was the largest that any state received. Now, CTCL released a preliminary list of grant recipients, but its documents don't include the amounts that they paid. That won't come out until 2023 when it has to release its 990 for 2020. But Capital Research Center managed to track a lot of the low from local news reports and the websites of county election officials where some of that money went to. Hayden Ludwig is the author of this. He talks about how Republicans traditionally have won by whopping margins. And this is what, like you can compare Texas is essentially Republicans, California. It's a state that Republicans typically take for granted that they really should be able to continue taking for granted because of the demographics. I mean, it's just most of the, the registration of Republicans over Democrats is so large that Republicans should never have to worry about losing Texas. However, you got to remember elections in America typically run, turnout runs anywhere from 55 to 65 percent. If Democrats can boost their turnout in left-leaning counties, so up to, say, 85 percent, 90 percent, they can flip a state like Texas. Because in extremely densely populated counties where, say, 60 percent of the population votes but votes 80 percent for Democrats, all they've got to do is run that number up, and they easily surpass the the margin of victory that Republicans typically run. So just as an example, in uh, 2016 – Donald Trump won 4,681,000 against Hillary Clinton's 3,867,000. Okay, so you got a difference of about about 800,000 votes. That's not hard to overcome if you boost turnout in Democratic-leaning counties. So what these quote-unquote Zuckbucks, as Ludwig calls them, did in Texas is they sent at least 118 grants across 254 counties. Interestingly, one of these grants was 251000 from former Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. CTCL funded eight of the ten most populous counties in Texas. Eight and ten. They didn't fund the other two. 
the other two went for Trump. So of the 10 most populous counties in Texas, eight of them went for Biden, and CTCL just happened to fund these eight counties that went for Biden, and they didn't fund the two that went for Trump. Kind of makes you think a bit, doesn't it? Right. Uh, Biden won 20 – he only won 22 of Texas 254 counties. So by – if you just look at the county vote, you would think, OK, well, Trump won by like 75 points. But you got to remember urban areas are heavily Democratic. Rural areas are heavily Republican. You can win 10 percent of Texas counties and still win the state. All you've got to do is run up those totals. CTCL funded 17 of these 22 counties that Biden won. Trump won 231 counties, 101 of which received CTCL uh, grants. So 77 percent of the counties that Biden won CTCL funded 17 of the 22 counties or 77 percent of Biden's victory. Of the counties that Trump won, they only funded 44 percent. In 2020, Biden flipped three counties that Trump won in 2016, all of which received CTCL grants. That's Tarrant, Williamson, and Hayes County. Trump flipped eight mostly small counties that Clinton won in 2016. Most These are mostly in southern Texas along uh, close to the Mexican border. These were some of the surprise counties with a lot of – with a very high Mexican population that Trump managed to pull out. But interestingly enough, these, these counties didn't receive a lot of funding from CTCL. I mean, it's almost like uh, CTCL saw the writing on the wall. They could see that uh, Trump was fixing to make inroads with these Hispanic heavy counties. And they said, no, we'll just we'll donate to the white suburban counties that we actually have a chance of flipping for Biden. Statewide, Trump averaged a 25 percent increase over his 2016 totals in both CTCL funded and unfunded counties. Biden averaged just 18 percent growth statewide. But here's the kicker. 40% – 40% he experienced 40% growth in the state's 10 largest counties compared to 35% for Trump. So these counties that by, that got funded by CTCL, they were the only counties that where Biden actually had a greater increase over Trump from 2016 to 2020. So I'll just – I'll go over that again. Trump averaged a 25% increase over 2016 because obviously um, turnout across the board was up. For both Republicans and Democrats, uh, Trump increased his turnout by 25 percent. Biden only grew his percentage over Clinton's by 18 percent. But in the 10 largest counties that received heavy CTCL funding, Biden increased his percentage by 40 percent, more than double what his statewide increase was. So it's clear that what Ludwig points out is that it's clear Biden won more votes in fewer places than his Democratic predecessors did in the past elections, while Trump expanded his base to include places he lost in his first presidential bid, those Hispanic majority counties in the southern part of the state. CTCL funds, though, targeted just the spots that Biden needed to improve upon if he was going to win Texas. So the thing we've got to understand with with big tech and the Democratic Party is there's often a revolving door. People who work for the DNC will then go work for big tech and then vice versa. So these people who work for Facebook and who work for these nonprofits that are funded by Facebook, they have the data. They know where Biden needs to increase his voter turnout if he wants to win Texas. They know where he needs to increase his voter turnout if he wants to win Pennsylvania, which is why as uh, in Philadelphia, you had massive amounts of drop boxes just strewn all over the city. Because Philadelphia was where Biden needed to run up the totals if he was going to win the state of Pennsylvania. They knew that in Texas, if a Democrat wants to win, he's got to do what Beto O'Rourke did. He's got to turn out the vote among white suburbanites, among young white-collar college graduates, many of whom have just arrived from other states, many of whom live in Austin, Dallas, Houston. So that's where the money went. So they specifically targeted these counties that tend to be liberal. 
So in these counties that CTCL targeted, the vote total that Biden gained was more than half of his entire statewide vote gain. In comparison, Trump got less than 2.1 million votes in these counties, accounting for 35% of his total votes. Just two cities alone received almost 25 million from CTCL, 9.6 million in Houston, that's Harris County, and 15 million in Dallas, which is the largest known single CTCL grant in the country. So if we put these figures into perspective, Houston's 9.6 million grant was enough for $2.04 for every man, woman, and child living in Harris County, or enough to buy every single Biden vote there for $10.46. Dallas received the equivalent of $5.74 per person living in the county, or $25.27 per Biden vote. I mentioned Philadelphia. Ludwig points out that uh, the CTCL spent $10 million to Philadelphia, which nearly doubled its elections budget. Obviously, you need more money, as I mentioned, because you got a lot of early voting, got a lot of mail-in voting, but do you really need double your budget? Uh, and what were these you can never have you can never have too much money as is part of their philosophy. Yeah, you can never have. I mean, why why ten million? Let's just up it to twenty million, thirty million. But this is another thing: the the grant, this particular grant to Philadelphia, required the city use funds these particular funds for printing and postage for mail in ballots. It also required Philadelphia to scatter secure drop boxes. As I mentioned, they just scattered these these quote unquote secure drop boxes around the city to collect ballots. This circumvented basic voting integrity requirements by allowing anyone without any identification to drop any number of ballots into a private collection bin with no official oversight and no accountability after the fact. So as Ludwig points out, if a fraudster wanted to flood Philadelphia with phony ballots, CTCL's Zuckbucks enabled him to bypass the U.S. Postal Service mailboxes. I don't think that any nonprofit should be given any money to help states conduct their elections. That's up to the state legislature. It's up to the state legislature in the counties to provide enough money to pay poll workers to do what they need to do to cover the elections. And here's the thing. If voters feel like the poll workers aren't receiving enough resources to do their job, that's what elections are for. They can vote more people in. They can lobby their, legis- they can lobby their legislatures to provide more funny t- uh, funding to poll workers. It's not up to nonprofits to step in and decide that they need to step in and help. But this is kind of this kind of continues the trend that we've talked about a lot, and that is with with liberal billionaires in this country, many of whom have made their fortunes in tech. They feel like they are a quasi government. They feel like they need to come in and step up and do the job that they feel government needs to do but isn't doing. That they they know that they are more powerful than the United States government, and they and again this that really came to a head when all the big tech companies just banned President Trump. In January, while he was still president of the United States, that was a moment that they said we are more powerful than the president of the United States, and we want to make sure everybody knows that. Right, and I don't. A lot of people forget in 1907 we had a recession, and J.P. Morgan, completely out of his personal funds, bailed out the U.S. government. We're at that stage right now, where a tycoon, um, you know, Jeff Bezos, could just open up his wallet and bail out the U.S. government if they ever needed help. And our debt is a little bit too high even for Jeff Bezos, but the, the point still stands. That these oligarchs have so much money. They, I mean, think about $350 million. Like I mentioned, that's more than a quarter of what these presidential campaigns spend throughout the entirety of the primary and the general election. No, no oligarch should be able to do this. I mean, especially the idea, anyone who thinks that this is nonpartisan, this is going to be conducted in a nonpartisan way, they're, they're kidding themselves. This organization is run by Democrats who worked for the Obama administration or who, or who worked for companies who provided consulting services to Democrats. Obviously, it's not going to be a surprise when – it should be a surprise whenever 92 percent of the funding that Pennsylvania gets from this outfit 
goes to counties that Biden wins. Exactly. It's so obvious what their goals are that, you know, that for all that they talk about election interference and, you know, that they act like, you know, we need to secure the integrity of our elections. This is what they do, that they either change the laws as they did in those key states and those key Rust Belt states. They change the laws so that what they're doing is legal or within the, the letter of the law. Or they turn around and they rely on corporate money. And for all the Democrats talk about Citizens United was the worst thing ever. We got to get big money out of politics. They are all too eager to accept big money when they know it will help them. And not only is not this isn't just big money. This isn't just another super PAC. This isn't just another donor. Like Zuckerberg didn't donate to Biden's campaign. He put money directly into efforts to influence the election in the second biggest state in the country. And what's really scary to me, something else I was thinking about, you mentioned a little while ago. That Texas is the Republicans, California. It's their big stronghold. And you're right. They do take it for granted. Obviously, between Texas and California, I hate to say it, Texas is way closer to flipping to the other party than than California is. But what this also proves, for all the talk about immigration, and yes, immigration is a big threat to this country, that they're just going to flood the border. They're already flooding the the border in Texas with illegals who are just going to immediately flip it blue by 2024, maybe even by 2022. But what this operation in 2020 by Zuckerberg if anything, this proves Texas already could be blue. It just depends on which voters you turn out and which voters you suppress, which is what they were doing by putting all this money into these heavily urban districts in, in an effort to suppress the Trump vote. But you mentioned that Zuckerberg didn't give to the Biden campaign. Like he instead is masking his donation to through philanthropy. And he really has taken a page straight out of George Soros's playbook because this is one thing that Democratic funders like George Soros decided they needed to do after John Kerry lost in 2004, that rather than donating straight directly to presidential campaigns or Democratic campaigns, what they need to do in addition to that is create nonprofits, 501c3s, that can pass as charities that you can write off your donation as tax deductible, who technically are supposed to be doing things for the public good. But advocate for uh, for things like solutions to fix the man-made climate change that we're experiencing or solutions uh, – they advocate for solutions to criminal justice inequity and uh, racial inequity, things that are overtly political but they mask it behind supposedly bipartisan language. As we know, Soros has jumped into funding D8 races around the country that are trying to change policing, change the way that we prosecute criminals in order to reduce the prison population. So Zuckerberg is doing the exact same thing. He and his wife Priscilla started giving grants to bail funds and prosecutor groups in 2019 and 2020. But the results of this is we're going to end up seeing a rise in crime. We already saw that in 2020. Our crime rates, especially the murder rate in urban areas in this country, are back to what they were in the 90s at the high. So, it, you know, what I think Zuckerberg is basically trying to be the new George Soros. He wants to try to, it's rather than be overtly political and donate to Democrats, which is what he would prefer to do. He wants to fund these nonprofits who are supposedly doing things in the public good and the public interest, which the the end result is a turnout and um, obviously in more Democratic votes and more more crime as you have a, lot, a bunch of left-wing DAs elected. I was going to say, I'll give him that. It is clever to try to imitate Soros as opposed to just direct donations like billionaires have passed or to just do what his other big tech Silicon Valley buddies are doing, like Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey obviously is not, to our knowledge at least, he's not getting directly involved in the electoral process and trying to turn out more votes or you know, ma- you know getting involved in voter fraud or whatever. He is just sticking to, I'm going to use my big tech platform to ban people I don't like, like Trump and like anybody to the right of Joseph Stalin. So Zuckerberg, and again, obviously Zuckerberg does that too on Facebook, and not as drastically as Dorsey, I don't think, but he definitely is using both the platform he created that subsequently that made him 
and he is also using the wealthy as a mass from that to influence elections and other processes outside of Facebook's purview. So it is smart on his part. I'll give him that. Yeah, can you imagine the if if the the tycoons from 120 years ago had had tried to influence um, elections in this manner and just the outrage that the original progressive movement would have uh, invade against they, them? They would get all their assets seized immediately and they'd be tried before the before Congress for treason. Probably. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So just in closing, just to kind of give you a sense of how close Texas was to flipping blue. So in 2016, Trump improved on Mitt Romney's turnout. He gained almost 126,000 votes over Mitt Romney. But Hillary Clinton gained 573,000 votes over Obama's 2012 turnout. But despite the fact that Clinton did a lot better than Obama did in Texas, uh, Trump was still able to cruise to an easy victory by 814,000 votes. Now, get this. In 2020, Biden increased his voting total to, uh, by, by 1.4 million. So uh, Trump beat Clinton in 2016 by 814,000 votes. Biden increased his vote numbers over Clinton's by 1.4 million. If Trump had only won in 2020 what he won in 2016 in Texas, Biden would have beat Trump by 600,000 votes. And this is the thing that Republican legislators are going to have to have to consider. If you're going to allow – do they want private entities coming in and funding their elections? Because these nonprofits, every single one of them just about, are funded by left-wingers. So for instance, this uh, CTCL, in addition to being funded by Zuckerberg, other left-wing organizations like the Democracy Fund, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation also funded this group. And these foundations who have these massive endowments, they're run by people who want complete transformation of the American system of government, who believe America is a racist society. The donations are tax deductible, so it's very easy to raise money from people who want to want to donate to politics but don't want to have to pay taxes on that money. And one more thing to emphasize why this is so important, that we must fight back using the legislatures, using the various processes and procedures that are in place is because, as we noted – President Trump did increase his vote total in Texas, and he did it almost entirely through actual grassroots increasing of the base. As we pointed out in previous episodes, there's one county towards the very southern tip of Texas located on the border called Zapatas County, a mostly Hispanic county and a border community that he lost to Hillary Clinton by 33 points in 2016. And then against Biden in 2020, he won it by five, a 38-point swing. And I guarantee you that wasn't because of some billionaire's money. That wasn't because of some, you know, get-out-the-vote effort. That was a natural growth of the grassroots movement that President Trump alone could achieve. But even then, that was still, obviously, his overall increase, his vote increase, as you pointed out, was not nearly as much as Biden's vote increase. So they will artificially grow their vote to completely wipe out any natural growth in our vote. So it is important to fight back and try to make sure this kind of garbage doesn't happen again. Certainly not in Texas, but not in any other Republican state. So for our featured topic today, we're going to discuss why exactly the left wins at everything. Why is it that conservatives can't seem to win anything in society, whether it's pop culture? Isn't that the $1.9 trillion question? Whether it's pop culture, whether it's politics, whether it's even in business now, it, the, the right can't seem to win anything. They are completely dominated in every single aspect of society. 
even in sports, which at one point was considered kind of like a right-wing bastion. So Richard Hanania discusses this in his piece in Substack, Why is Everything Liberal? Richard Hanania is a research fellow at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. We're going to link this in the description. So one of the things that he talks about, Hanania talks about, is he points out is in a democracy, every vote is supposed to be equal. So he writes, if half, if about half the country supports one side and half the country supports another, you may expect major institutions to either be equally divided or to try to stay politically neutral. Which would make sense. I mean, MLB is about half Democrat, half Republican. It's fan base. The NBA leans heavily Democrat. The NFL slightly Democrat. Other other sports like UFC are heavily conservative. But if let's say if, if you run Major League Baseball, you want to try to stay. It would make sense to stay as politically neutral as possible because you don't want to alienate any of your fan base. But that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing even the MLB is taking stances that are that no Republican agrees with, or almost no Republican agrees with. So it makes you wonder, how can they do that? Well, Hanania argues that when you're dealing with institutions in, a, in this society, you can't look at the voters, at the, at the fan base, at the customer base as individuals, where you think we have one person, one vote. And he makes this distinction between ordinal versus cardinal utility. So he writes, through the lens of ordinal utility, in which people simply rank what they want to, want to happen, we are about equal. I prefer Republicans to Democrats, while you have the opposite preference. But when we think in terms of cardinal utility, in layman's terms, that means how that how badly people want something to happen. Because most people are relatively indifferent to politics and see it as a small part of their lives, yet a small percentage of the population takes it very seriously and makes it part of its identity. So in a way, this is like religion. Uh, people who are extremely religious, their religion is part of their identity. It's not just a small part of their lives. It makes up who they are as people. So he's arguing that the difference between ordinal utility and cardinal utility is or in ordinal utility, everyone is equal in, this, in that it's one man, one vote. We all vote for who we want for president. We go, we put in our vote, we forget about it, we go live our lives. Cardinal utility, though, is something completely different, and what he's arguing here is those with cardinal utility tend to punch above their weight and influence, and institutions are going to be more responsive to them. So he writes, elections are a measure of ordinal preference. As long as you care enough to vote, it doesn't matter how much you care about the election outcome, as everyone's voice is the same. But for everything else, who speaks up in a board meeting about whether a corporation should take a political position, who protests against a company taking a position one side or the other uh, finds offensive, etc.? Cardinal utility matters a lot. Only a small minority of the public ever bothers to try to influence a corporation, school, or nonprofit to reflect certain values, whether from the inside or out. In an evenly divided country, if one side simply cares more, it's going to exert a disproportionate influence on all institutions across the board and be more likely to see its preferences enacted in the time between elections when most people aren't paying much attention. And he, he demonstrates this through a couple of bubble charts. He shows the different professions where the majority of donations went to Biden and the different professions where the majority of donations went to Trump. And we also – this will, of course, be a part of the article that we link in the description. But so, for instance, he, the colors in dark blue professions that went overwhelmingly to Biden, light blue, the ones that slightly to Biden, dark red uh, overwhelmingly to Trump, and light red for those that went slightly to Trump. Among the dark blue, dark blue, of course, are professors, librarians, therapists, and psychologists. This isn't surprising. Educators, social workers – Here's where it gets interesting, though. Lawyers. Now, the law profession is one area, one white-collar area where a lot of Republicans' kids actually go into. But from the graph he provides, lawyers overwhelmingly gave to Joe Biden. Um, another one is teachers. 
marketing professionals. That's another industry that a lot of Republicans go into. So it's not like this is an industry that's dominated by Democrats. Writers and authors, scientists. Okay, writers and authors make sense, but scientists. There's plenty of Republican scientists. That's not a that's not an area that is specifically Democratic. Doctors and physicians, another area where a lot of Republicans go into, but donated overwhelmingly to Joe Biden. Consultants, human resources employees, which that's a problem when you consider that human resources employees that control the hiring and firing. Retail employees, bankers, engineers of uh, software, um, in, uh, engineers for non-software products, IT professionals, project managers. All of these, many of these are areas where are, that are actually heavily Republican. Another one is accounting. Accounting is a profession that is overwhelmingly Republican. In fact, I have got a friend who's an accountant. His professor told the students, now, if you're a Democrat, don't be surprised if most of your classmates are Republican and most of the people you work with as an accountant are Republican. That's just the way it goes. But accountants overwhelmingly voted, or I should say, well, voted with their dollars for Joe Biden. Now, you move down to the red area, the area where most Republicans, where there were more money flowing out of these industries into out of these professions into Donald Trump's coffers. We have business owners, technicians, pilots, drivers, laborers, construction workers, contractors, electricians, homemakers, disabled uh, people on disability, stay-at-home moms, welders, machinists. No, typical. You know, pastors, firefighters. None of this is surprising. But if you look at the graph, the blue out just completely dwarfs the red because most people who work in these professions that donated Trump don't make a lot of money. When he also covers the different the specific employers, like the companies that people work for, that donated to different candidates, and the only major employers that donated overwhelmingly to Trump are the U.S. Marines, the U.S. military, and the NYPD. Every single other major entity, every corporation donated overwhelmingly to Biden. So, just a few examples: U.S. Postal Service, Amazon, U.S. Government, Veterans Affairs. Um, the state, obviously, the state of California, hospitals, Kaiser Permanente, Bank of America, AT and T, U.S. Navy. The Navy voted. I mean, the, the the majority of the donations that came out of the U.S. Navy went to uh, went to Joe Biden. A slight majority of the donations that came out of the Air Force went to Joe Biden. Lowe's, Safeway, Walmart, FedEx. These are these are industries and areas of government that are not overwhelmingly democratic. Yet the vast majority of donations from these industry, from these companies and these industries flowed to Joe Biden. So Hanania writes, what jumps out to me in these figures is not only how left-leaning large institutions are, but how the same is true for most professions. Whether you're looking at uh, the institution or um, by individuals, whether, whether you are looking by institution or by individuals, there are more donations to Biden than Trump. Yet Republicans get close to half the votes. So where are the Trump supporters? He asks, what these graphs reveal is a larger story in which people give to liberal causes and candidates more than they give to conservative ones, even if Americans are about equally divided in which party they support. And this is not – he writes in parentheses, no, this is not the result of liberals being wealthier. The, he, and he links to a study that shows that the connection between income and ideology is pretty weak. So he also provides some graphs that show um, how in swing states Biden got more donations than Trump. And it's in every single battleground state in, Ari state in Arizona. Uh, after the first debate, Biden got 20,000 20, donors, individual donors. Trump got 15. Florida, Biden 57,000. Trump 44,000. Georgia, Biden 24,000. 
Trump 14,000. It goes on and on. Michigan, Minnesota, Iowa, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Ohio, Wisconsin, Texas, even Texas, Pennsylvania, in every single swing state, Biden got more individual donors than Trump got. The Washington Post analyzed donations from January 1st, 2020 to October 14th and found that Biden and his associated Democratic super PACs received donations from nearly 5.9 million people, while Trump saw donations from 3.7 million people. Biden's, don't, Biden's voters were obviously much more motivated to donate than Trump's voters. By October of 2020, approximately 9.6 million Americans had donated to a presidential campaign compared to 161 million who had voted. In other words, 49.1% of Americans cast a ballot in 2020. Only 2.9% cared enough to actually give money to one side or the other. That is a tiny, tiny fraction of the voting pool. But the argument that he's making is the reason why Democrats are donating at such higher rates than Republicans is because they care more about the outcomes than Republicans do because to them, their ideology is in many ways their religion. And it doesn't really – you don't really have to have uh, – you don't really have to outpace your opponent by much when you consider that only 3 percent of the actual voters donate to a campaign. Most people don't donate at all to anybody. And But whenever you've got if, – like if you've got 60 percent of the people who do donate – and another thing, you've got to remember a lot of these people that are donating, they're government employees, so they're extremely politically active, and they make high salaries. So they, they make like 90000 a year. They can afford to dig deep and give to their to their Democrats – to these Democratic campaigns. Democrats outraised – and of course Hillary Clinton, she outspent Trump two to one in 2016. It's, not, it's nothing new for Democrats to outspend Republicans. But what Hanania is pointing out, he, what he's trying to do – is get to the bottom to understand why this is, and we see this um, in in other areas. We we see this in the in the way that Democratic voters and Republican voters view politics. So, for instance, in a poll that was taken after the 2016 election, asking Clinton voters if they can be friends with Trump voters, 61 percent of Clinton voters said that it would be hard to be friends with a Trump supporter, whereas only 34 percent of Trump supporters said that it would be hard to be friends with a Clinton supporter. So this extends to the dating pool as well. About 7 in 10 Democratic daters would not consider being in a relationship with a Trump voter. So among Trump supporters, that's, that number is only 19 percent who said they would definitely not uh, date a uh, Clinton voter and 29 percent who said they would probably not date a Trump uh, – a Clinton voter. So, so basically you and I are screwed, right, You know, in this area? <laughs> like this is that's, – that's, that's the thing too. That's one more thing, that this is their life. This is their – religion of them as you said that they are even willing to guard their dating preferences based on who you voted for it's unreal the amount of people who are like i will not even date a trump supporter if you dare to if you're a fascist then don't even date me and i'm just like they literally let these things dictate every aspect of their lives it's a cult well it is a cult but it's not so i, I remember as i started paying attention to politics i was uh i'd noticed about 25 percent of the country felt like that it felt like politics was their religion, like they were very unhappy with America because they felt like it was too right wing. This is during the Bush years. And I remember thinking, well, it's a good thing they're only 25 percent. Well, now they're like 45 percent to 50 percent. And at the time, it was easy for I think conservatives kind of got had gotten this mentality that, yeah, they're just they're just crazies. We can ignore them. You can't ignore them anymore. This is why Biden is president right now. This is why this is well, the that reason voter fraud. why. Well, the voter fraud happened because of this. It happened because they, this is their life. The people who worked those polls, the people who cheated, 
they care more about this than they care about anything, about honesty, about voter integrity. They don't care about democracy. They care about their side winning the election because they feel like the other side is evil and they have to do whatever they can to win. This is why they're they're donating sacrificially. Like all the money that that conservative Christians give to their churches, liberals give to political donate to political campaigns and political causes. Exactly. This is their religion. Now, the question that Hanania asks is, you know, what exactly do conservatives do about this? Because, like I said, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, it wasn't that big of a deal on the right because the right still had the business community behind it. So while you could have preacher, uh, you know, left-leaning mainline denominational uh, preachers and their adherents who would give sacrificially to the Democratic Party and liberal causes, obviously what was left of big labor was given sacrificially at the time. We still had business in our corner. Well, now we don't even have business in our corner. Now all of the corporations have completely turned to the far left. They see the far left as ascendant, and they think that that is their ticket to continual continued financial domination, financial prosperity. So Anania says in addition to money, another way to measure cardinal utility is to look at protests. Like he said, most people prefer to vote and then forget about it. They vote you know, once every four years, once every two years, depending on how active they are. They go cast their ballot and they leave and they forget about it and they try to put politics out of their mind. They try to go enjoy life and live their life as happy Americans. They don't continually think about this stuff. Those people, though, have less political power than someone who stays active politically. A lot of people will complain about the fact that you know a person, maybe if they're rich, they'll complain that their vote counts less than a poor person. Or they'll claim that a person who is intelligent on politics, they'll claim that their vote counts the same as someone who is unintelligent. Well, the way people who are intelligent about politics make up for that is by staying active. So people on the left specifically, some people on the right, but the people on the right who are active in between elections are far fewer – they continue to uh, – voting is just part of the process. After they vote, they continue to stay active, and this is what you see, especially among uh, black Americans. They will continue – whenever they're talking about politics, they say we have to stay active. We've got to keep going because the struggle is not over. The fight's not over. For them, it's a continual struggle. It's a continual fight. Every day of their lives is a continual struggle to make sure that what they believe in politically is implemented legally. So Hanania points out that in September 2009, at the height of the Tea Party movement, conservatives held the Taxpayer March on Washington. This drew something like 60,000 to 70,000 people. One leading newspaper called it uh, the largest conservative protest ever to storm the Capitol. But since that time, you think about the other protests on the, on the left, uh, Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street dwarfed the Tea Party. I mean completely dwarfed it. I remember whenever the Tea Party was happening, I was thinking, wow, America's really rising up and pushing back against Obamacare and against radical liberalism. And then the following year, the Occupy Wall Street protest break out. I'm like, uh, never mind. Like uh, there's nothing that – I mean Tea, Tea Party it, didn't compete with that even. It, in terms completely. of size, no, but thankfully the Tea Party did – at the time, certainly you could argue the Tea Party did affect way more political change. The Tea Party was behind – the massive wave of the 2010 midterms, whereas Occupy Wall Street came along a year later, obviously astroturfed by the Soros's trying to imitate the Tea Party from a left-wing perspective. But, of course, what was their big electoral victory? The, the Occupy Wall Street is not what got Obama reelected, and Occupy Wall Street's candidate of choice was Bernie Sanders, and he lost both times. You know, It did not materialize into political victories the way the Tea Party did. But if you move on past Occupy Wall Street and you look at the protests that have happened since then, so let's uh, think about the, the March um, – what was that? Oh, the March for Our Lives, the pro-gun control right, rally, the which, activists. 
Uh, that that saw about 800,000 people show up around the country, which was more than what the Tea Party saw. Uh, sure. But, I mean, is that really this carrying on the Occupy Wall Street tradition or are those more just no, like no, adjacent no, travelers? No, no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying a left-wing protest in general. Oh, if you oh look in at, general, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah if you look say, at the yeah. raw numbers of left-wing protests and compare them to right-wing protests, sure. they, they completely dwarf right-wing protests. Another one is the Women's March, which yeah, – Half uh, a million. No, yeah. well, if you, that's just in Washington, D.C. It had half a million. If you look at nationwide, there were estimates uh, – Point, uh, point to somewhere between 3.2 million to 5.2 million of people who participated in it all around the country. And it could be said, too, that yes, you're certainly right. It could be said that with a lot of these protests, it's easier for the left to get on protests because most of them don't have jobs, whereas people on the right do have jobs. So, I mean, that that is one reason you could look at it. That but, is the way – that's the way a lot of conservatives look at it, and they're dead wrong. That is not the reason why these people – why the left ma- um, manages to amass such huge numbers of people out in the streets. To a certain extent, sometimes on the local level, you'll see protesters who are funded by organizations that are funded by Soros. We definitely saw this with Occupy Wall Street, with the early Black Lives Matter protests. And what we saw last year was a lot of these organizations like the ones that Zuckerberg is funding would provide bail to protesters. So they would be a lot more apt to get out there and risk getting arrested, knowing that they were going to get bailed out. But as far as people actually taking off time from work or going out to protest after work, we see we do see a lot more of this from the left, from people who do have jobs and we do from the right for a few reasons. And just to just to show the the comparison, like this is one point six percent of the entire U.S. population that participated in the Women's March. But the reason we see this is for I would argue and Hanania makes the same arguments for two reasons. Number one, most of these people are single. They do not have families, so they don't have to go home and take care of kids at night. They go home and go to sleep. They wake up the next morning. They go to work. They get off work. Hey, what are we going to do? Well, we can go hang out with friends or we can go protest and bust up a Starbucks, which is more fun. If I'm a 22-year-old who has no ethics or morals or religion, I want to go bust out some Starbucks windows. Get that's some just, free Nikes, yeah. Right. That's that's a lot more fun than just going and shooting basketball or throwing a football around or whatever. So that's the that's the first reason. And of course, the Women's March attracted a lot of young single women who don't have husbands, don't have children. Another reason is because, as Hanani is pointing out in this article, liberals are a lot more committed to their cause than conservatives are. For conservatives, they vote. That's it. A very select few will donate to political campaigns. Almost nobody on the right donates to nonprofits who support right-wing causes. They vote. They forget about it. They go home to their families. They live their lives in quiet and peace, and they prefer not to get involved in politics outside of election years. The left doesn't think like that, at least a very loud vocal minority of the left. They vote, and they stay active. They're looking forward to the next protest. In fact, Many of them actually live to protest. They will travel around the country, and this, of course, we saw this. There are lots of streamers who would travel around the country, and they would talk to people who bounce around from protest to protest. They go to Portland, they go to Seattle. I, I encountered several of these people. They flew in for um, who's that uh, race hustler's name? Uh, Al Sharpton. He held his per- he held his march in Washington last August. There were people flying in from Portland who had just got through busting up Kenosha. They went from Portland to Kenosha, and then they moved over here to D.C. to start causing trouble in D.C., and they went back to Portland to keep burn- trying to burn down the, the courthouse in Portland. A lot of these people lived to protest. And what's interesting is the right – the one um, area in which the right actually does produce huge numbers of protesters and activists is in the anti-abortion crusade. 
the March for Life regularly attracts massive numbers every yep. single year. There's no other right-wing cause that attracts more attention, more money, and more boots on the ground than the March for Life. And what do you know? It's not some fiscal issue like lower taxes or you know deregulation. It's a very emotional social issue. Exactly. It's an emotional social issue that tugs at the heartstrings. And this is one thing that you'll find, generally speaking— a lot more women are interested in limiting abortion than men. A lot of these March for Lives uh, they, life uh, marches are, women. are full of women, just like the Women's March. If there's an emotional issue that is going to galvanize the population and get people riled up for a political cause, it's going to be something that tugs at the heartstrings and gets women in the streets and gets women activated. And there really is no other – there's very few issues on the right other than the right to life issue that galvanizes so much of the population, which makes you wonder – why is it that Republicans want to run away from right to life? Why exactly. is it that Republicans want to shun the abortion issue if that's the one issue that really gets their people in the streets and gets their people activated politically? Well, and something else, too, that on that same note is that it is like like many of these other protests, as you mentioned, March for Our Lives, or all these climate marches. They, pan, they appeal specifically to young people, and the March for Life does that as well. A lot of the marchers at March for Life are really young, and that's one thing I thought that was really clever when they first started doing all those stupid climate marches. And they would be during school days, during school hours, and entire teachers and school districts would let the students leave, like ditch class mm -hmm. to go march to protest for the global warming. And I remember thinking, oh, well, of course, if I'm a high school and I have a chance to miss a whole day of school to go to some super protest, absolutely I would. I oh, mean, yeah, I, I would say I'd go protest and then I'd leave and go to the mall with my friends. But, and that's probably what a lot of kids did. But they make it seem cool and they tack it on with the added bonus of, oh, yeah, skip school. And then, of course, then they go to the protest scene and they get into that protest culture they meet other like-minded people and you know the you know guys get to meet cute girls and whatnot and they learn to like protest culture it can be the same on the right with the march for life you know famously a couple of years ago you had nick sandman and the covington catholic kids and there were young people there who were obviously there to meet other young people and you know be united through this cause and of course in their case it ended up going south very quickly but that is another way that it works and yeah the march for life uh, other, there's nothing else i can think of off the top of my head even that the right is willing to even agree on stance wise you know obviously the right doesn't really the republican party institutionally doesn't really oppose gay marriage anymore even though they should um there's nothing else like religious you could argue maybe religious freedom or the second amendment possibly but those don't tug at the heartstrings quite the same way that abortion does so a final way that uh, Hanania points out to, that we need to consider cardinal utility – remember this whole, the whole article is about ordinal utility versus cardinal utility – is through media and academia. He points out that generally these are professions that have absolutely terrible career prospects and they draw people with high IQs who could expect to be making a lot more money doing something else. This is true for government work, by the way, uh, too, by the way. Government workers tend to be extremely intelligent. They have high IQs. But they don't make a, as much money in the public sector as many of them could in the private sector if they went into the private sector. Many of them go into the public sector because they want a comfortable, steady, safe life. They just don't want to take the risk. But with media and academia, it's completely different. Not only is it a risk to go into these professions, but the reward is very, very minimal. It is absolutely – as someone with, the, with a liberal arts degree, I can tell you that the – the employment opportunities with a liberal arts degree are extremely diminished because a lot of people went into these uh, career paths during the recession. But as time goes on and people start to see that they're making a mistake financially to go to pursue these professions, what happens is conservatives tend to drop off and liberals tend to stick with it. 
So Hanania says, for those who make it in these fields, individuals get to have an influence on society that is disproportionate to their status as measured by income. The media makes it harder to be a right-wing activist through doxing, etc., and we understand that. So that might explain to some extent why it's less politically – why the right is less politically active. But he argues that for most conservatives, they don't go into it because it doesn't make a lot of sense. So Hanania writes, it's important to highlight just what an irrational decision going into academia is for a person who wants to maximize their lifetime earnings. Graduate school takes something like six years during which you're making something like minimum wage salaries a college graduate. This is all in the hopes of getting a postdoc, perhaps bouncing around low-paying jobs for a few years until the point where you finally find permanent employment at around 30 at the earliest. Even then, you often don't make as much money as a Walmart manager, and those are successful cases. Many PhD, there's a lot of people who paint houses for a living who have PhDs. He writes, people go into academia and journalism for generally idealistic reasons, and this is key. Conservatives don't go to college for idealistic reasons. They go to college to make money. Liberals go to college for idealistic reasons. They don't care about the money. They care about changing the world. He writes, some conservatives might be turned away from these professions for political reasons, which poses a, chick, uh, a chicken or egg problem. He writes that, in my experience, a smart young person going into journalism is probably better off going into conservative media than, are li than they are liberal media, which is already saturated. But even in conservative media, there's a dearth of conservative journalists because of the fact that they can't make much money. I remember a story a friend of mine told me about a girl he went to college with. She wanted to be a broadcaster, and he ran into her a few years later, and uh, she was all excited the f about the fact that she had succeeded. And she was working for a television station in Arkansas as a broadcaster. And uh, he said, great, great. How much are you making? She said, $33,000. And he was like, his jaw just dropped. He's like, wow, this poor girl went through four years of college and like two internships, and she finally achieved her dream, and she's making $33,000 a year. And I mean, that's the reason why, you know, conservatives just aren't going to do that. Whereas liberals, they don't mind doing that because they're in it. They're not planning on getting married, many of them. They're not planning on having kids, many of them. They're planning on changing the world, and they can punch above their weight if they work in journalism. So Republicans, even though they're dominated in every aspect of American culture, they still manage to win elections because their people still vote. He writes, the future belongs to those at the tail end of the distribution who really want to change the world. One of the biggest complaints that Republican voters have with the Republican Party is that elected officials don't do what they say they're going to. Most Republicans are extremely disappointed in their elected officials, whereas most Democrats are fairly satisfied in their elected officials. Because Republicans expect to go to the polls once every two years and vote and have elected officials who will do what they want them to do, whereas Democrats understand that these elected officials are not going to do what they want them to do unless they continue to beat down their door and threaten to throw them out the next election or threaten to protest and stay in the streets and block traffic. So for that reason, Republicans can't seem to get anything done even though they elect people to office. So Hanania says – he asked the question, how – are conservatives actually going to reform themselves to be able to be influential? He asked, do you, want, do you want to give government more power over corporations? None of the regulators will be on your side. Do you want to leave corporations alone? Then you leave power to what he calls woke capital, though it must be to a certain extent disciplined and limited by the preference of consumers, which as we can tell from our current society, consumers don't really exert that much pressure on corporations. Uh, okay, so another solution, he says, uh, you could start your own institutions. So conservatives could just start their own institutions. They could start their own Twitter. They could start their own Walmart, their own MLB. But he, he says, good luck staffing them with competent people for normal NGO or media salaries. And if you're not careful, they'll be captured by your enemies anyway. 
And this is what we see with somebody like Caitlin Collins. CNN's Caitlin Collins, their main reporter, she started out in D.C. as a reporter for The Daily Caller. She was trained by conservative dollars. Conservative mega donors gave money to The Daily Caller, an example of a right-wing, of a right-wing foundation that trains journalists. All right. Um, this is so. I actually interviewed with uh, their with the Daily Caller's uh, co-founder Neil Patel, who founded it with Tucker Carlson a few years back. And one thing he told me in the interview was that they tried to train journalists, which put they put them through two years of training, and then they send them out into the world to I guess to conquer the world of journalism. But he said they they try to push a lot of their journalists into left-wing outlets, he said, because their donors like that. So they can write back to their donors and tell them that they're training conservative journalists to infiltrate the Huffington Post, to infiltrate CNN. But he told me that one of the problems they have is a lot of these journalists, they end up going native after they go into these outlets and they just become liberals because they're surrounded by liberals and liberals are paying their salary. And they want to fit into the social scene as well. Right. And I was thinking, when he told me that, I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like you're using conservative donors' dollars to train young conservative journalists who – many of whom aren't really well-grounded in their ideology. No, they're just seeking opportunities. You're, yeah, you're training them to be – like in this – the Daily Caller really trains their journalists. They train them to be crack journalists. And then CNN and these left-wing outlets, they just come – they're like, well, thank you very much, conservatives. And they scoop up these journalists who have been trained by the Daily Caller, and they, you know, they use them to push their left-wing agenda. Case in point, Caitlin Collins. Caitlin Collins was the White House reporter for the Daily Caller. CNN scooped her up, and now she calls – she was the main one causing the most grief to, uh, to Kaylee McEnany and the Trump administration. But this is what happens. If you, like you say, well, let's just start our own foundations. Let's start our own institutions. Let's create alternative tech, alternative media. Okay. But where are you going to staff – where are you going to get people to work at these institutions? Most of the ta- – most talented, high IQ conservatives are working in business. They've already founded their own businesses. They're working in secular – Non-political non- jobs. Right. They're working in apolitical jobs. They, they vote and that's it. They don't want to be bothered with it. You're not going to get them to work for you unless you're going to pay them. I mean if you want to – because the thing is they're already making like $200,000 a year. If you're going to pay them 250000 a year – to be a reporter, I guess maybe you can get them to work for you, but you're not going to get you're not going to pull them away from those marketing firms or wherever they're working at or as accountants to come work for you in journalism and be basically uh, political, uh, you know, political hitmen. And so for that reason, whenever you do get good, talented people, oftentimes the left will come and scoop those people up and use them. They'll be like, well, thank you very much. And then they come take them away and they use them for their purposes. So this is. This is the thing. Like conservatives, they can't really – if you want to give government more power over corporations, the regulators are going to be against you. You want to leave corporations alone, like basically play free market economics like the Republican Party does, then, well, you're going to have woke capital run a roughshod over you and boycott in your states. Or you can start your own institutions and fail miserably. So the, the thing that the, – the silver lining he points out in all this is that people who identify as right-wing are typically happier – they're less mentally ill. They're more likely to start families, which suggests that political activism is a sign of the less well-adjusted mind or the result of seeking to fill an empty void in one's personal life. And that that actually is true. A lot of people on the right who are politically active, like the people in the alt-right, they are people who aren't very socially adjusted. They don't no. have families, and they are kind of seeking to fill a void in their personal life. So as as the right becomes more and more marginalized, you're probably going to see a lot more radicals on the right who actually become political entrepreneurs 
uh, like you saw with the alt-right. Because, I mean, when you think about it, there really hasn't been a upstart movement that is similar to the alt-right since the 1950s with National Review. 1950s, 1960s, like the counter-revolution, the counter-cultural revolution. So this also explains conservatives' obsession with the economy and uh, non-confrontation. I've talked to a lot of people who are very outraged and disgusted and even terrified at where they see the country going. And their solution seems to be, well, let's just get the economy back and running well. And this is kind of Trump's response when they asked him, what are you going to do to bring the country together? And his the only thing he ever really brought up was, well, we'll just get the economy going back and things will be good like they were in 2019. Things weren't good in 2019. The country wasn't united in 2019. Um, a good economy – and this is the thing a lot of conservatives think. Well, if we can just get a good economy going, people will settle down. They'll stop paying so much attention to politics. They'll get married. They'll start families. We'll move back to a normal, to a normal quiet society. No, the economy was, was roaring in Trump's first term prior to COVID, and obviously that didn't work. No, you know, no, that didn't, didn't. no, no that's, that's correct. Uh, people, conservatives think if pe- people will act normal if they have money, but it's not lack of money that's driving people to act normal. People who lack money many times get sucked into the more radical aspects of political activism, but it's ideology. Ideology is what and, – and uh, propaganda. That's what is driving Black Lives Matter. It's not a lack of money. I, I was listening to Pat Buchanan's biography, and he was talking about how whenever he was in the Nixon administration, uh, several Nixon employees who were kind of on the left side of the Republican Party, when they saw the riots that were happening in the 60s, they, their immediate response was, we got to get some money into those communities. And hmm. Buchanan's response was, what are you talking about? we got to get the military into those communities. Because those people weren't being driven by economic, lack of economic opportunity. They were being driven by ideology. And that's the thing. After the MLK assassination, when D.C. burned to the ground, it wasn't driven by people just randomly, spontaneously burning stuff to the ground. It was um, it was being led by Stokely Carmichael, who specifically encouraged people who were protesting angry to start busting out windows and burning stuff down. If it hadn't been for that kind of leadership, you wouldn't have seen the lar- the wide-scale rioting and burning that you did. And it's the same way with BLM. Th- these things are organized. They're ideologically driven. So if the right is ever going to take back control of the country, it's going to have to understand that ideas matter more than economics. It isn't the economy stupid. That that it just, it just isn't true. Not it anymore. Is, that, that was true in the 90s with Bill Clinton, but it's right, not true anymore. Right. It's not true anymore. It is ideas. Ideas are what drive society. So Hanania closes out by uh, drawing – by quoting a passage from Scott Alexander who writes the following in his review of a biography of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He writes, the normal course of politics is various condi- coalitions of elites and populists, each drawing from their own power bases. A normal political party, like a normal anything else, has elite leaders, analysts, propagandists, and managers, plus populist foot soldiers. Then there's an election, and sometimes our elites get in, sometimes your elites get in. But getting a political party that's against the elites is really hard and usually the sort of thing that gets claimed rather than accomplished because elites naturally rise to the top of everything. Sometimes, however, political parties can run on an explicitly anti-elite platform. In theory, this sounds good. Nobody wants to be an elitist. In practice, this gets really nasty quickly. Democracy is a pure numbers game, so it's hard for the elites to control. The populace can can genuinely seize the reins of a democracy if it really wants. But if that happens, the government will be arrayed against every other institution in the nation. Elites naturally rise to the top of everything, media, academia, culture. So all those institutions will hate the new government and be hated by it in turn. Reminds me of the Trump administration. Since all natural organic processes favor elites, if the government wants to win, it will have to destroy everything natural and organic. For example, shut down the regular media and replace it with a government-controlled media run by its supporters. 
When elites use the government to promote elite culture, this usually looks like giving grants to the most promising up-and-coming artists recommended by the art schools themselves and having the local art critics praise their taste and acumen. However, when the populace uses the government to promote popular culture against elite culture, this usually looks something like ham-fisted attempts to designate some kind of official style based on what popular stereotypes think is real art from back in the day when it was good, which every art school and art critic attacks as clueless philistinism. Every artist in the country will make groundbreaking, exciting new art criticizing the government's poor judgment while the government desperately looks for a few technicians willing to take their money and make, I don't know, pretty landscape paintings or big neoclassical buildings. The important point is that elite government can govern with a light touch because everything naturally tends toward what they want and they just need to shepherd it along. But popular anti-elite populist government has a strong tendency toward dictatorship because it won't get what it wants without crushing every normal organic process, thus the stereotype of right-wing strong, of the right-wing strongman who gets busy with the crushing. So the idea of right-wing populism might invoke this general concept of somebody who, because they have made themselves the champion of the populace against the elites, will probably end up incentivized to crush all organic processes of civil society and yoke culture and academia to the will of government in a heavy-handed manner. And this is why people turned out and voted for Trump. They wanted somebody who was going to go in there and crush the elites. They wanted somebody who was going to go in there and ham-fistedly destroy all of these institutions that hate them and hate their culture, hate their country, hate their history. And we see this with the rise of QAnon. Uh, the people in the QAnon cult, they actually believe that Trump was going to send in the military, arrest Biden, arrest McConnell, arrest all these rhinos, arrest the Democrats, arrest Pelosi, shut the country down for eight weeks. We would have complete power outages for eight weeks, and then he would restore the American Republic, which would basically be a right-wing dictatorship. When you have a group of your base that believes that, they're not electing – they're not voting for a president. They're voting for a right-wing strongman. Now, we don't actually have to go into – we don't actually have to install a dictator to reform our current institutions. But we do have to embrace government power. If the right ever wants to hope to win, we do have to em completely embrace the idea that the government is our best friend and it is our best hope against fighting back against the current institutions who hate average, everyday working Americans. Yeah, railing against big government obviously made sense in the context of the Cold War. We've talked about this before, but it is no longer – certainly in this world where big corporations are just as much of a problem as big government, we might as well figure, OK, well, what's one – between those two, we still have a chance to take control of government and use it to our advantage. And I also do think one more cultural change that needs to happen as well. As you said before, the left has made politics their religion. It is part of their identity now. It's what they live and breathe and think every day. They give money to – political causes like the right gives money to religious causes to actual churches and i'm not saying that the right should abandon religion obviously religion is important but until we can convince enough people on the right that this is a battle that will involve them it will involve every aspect of their life whether they like it or not because the left has made it that way and they are determined to destroy any of their opposition who doesn't see it that way so they see the people on the right who oh no no politics i don't care much for politics i don't think about it much in my life and they say no no you're gonna care about politics in your life because we say so so until we convince the right that they need to match that level of political passion in their everyday life then we will not have much hope of defeating the left until and unless that happens. Well, I will say we do see some very promising trends in that direction. We see Marco Rubio uh, support and unionization for Amazon workers because Amazon supported Black Lives Matter. We see state legislatures finally getting the ball rolling in uh, uh, banning nonprofits which are, who are um, funded by billionaires with major mega corporations from influencing elections. 
And interestingly enough, J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, he is mm-hmm. seems to be very interested in running for the Senate in, in Ohio. Ohio, which would be he. I think he'd be an, easy, an immediate front runner for the nomination and the general election. Oh, absolutely! And he he tweeted out recently talking about Google. He said, "Raise their taxes and do whatever else is necessary to fight these goons. We can have the an American republic or a global oligarchy, and it's time for choosing." And this is really the choice that people on the right have to make. Do you want to continue to play by the same free market rules that governed America back when most American corporations and American elites believed that the founding fathers were wonderful and that America's founding was glorious? Or do you want to continue or do you want to crack down on what is today the billionaires and the oligarchs who believe that America's founders were racist and that America's founding was evil? I mean, faced with that choice, I would rather have a big, heavy-handed government, whether at the state level or the federal level, that will completely not only crush these corporations, not only tax these corporations. Like I understand J.D. Vance is wanting to tax them and do whatever else is necessary, but I think I know what's necessary. Like I've mentioned in a previous episode, let's we really need to show these corporations um, who runs the country, and the only way you're going to do that is by selective eminent domain, punitive eminent domain. Start confiscating their property, start confiscating their homes, start confiscating their goods and services and use it for state purposes. I mean think about it. That's what, that's what these so-called dictators who are actually just patriots in their countries do whenever multinational corporations come into their countries and start interfering with their politics. They just nationalize them. Like, OK, well, you want to interfere in our politics? We'll, we'll show you that we run our country and you don't, and they just nationalize it. We need to start pushing for nationalization on the right if we ever want to have a chance of actually taking our country back. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode. This was obviously a very in-depth and I like to think uh, educational episode, always talking about what the right can do and should do in order to turn the tide against this seemingly inevitable decline that our country is on now. So until next time, be sure once again to follow us on all the various social media platforms and podcast platforms where we are available. And you can find a full list of where to follow us at righttakepodcast.com slash contact. We'll talk to you next week, guys.